Book Three, Chapter Nine of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. After parting with Sir Edward Digby at Woodchurch, Henry Leighton had ridden on at a quick pace to Parkgate and thence along the high road to Cranbrook. He himself was habited in the undress of his regiment, though with pistols at his saddle and a heavy sword by his side. One of his servants followed him similarly accoutred, and an orderly accompanied the servant, while by the young officer's side appeared our good friend, Mr. Mole, heavily armed, with the somewhat anomalous equipments of a riding officer of customs in those days. At a little distance behind this first group came Cornet Joyce and his party of dragoons, and in this order they all passed through Cranbrook about nine o'clock, but a quarter of a mile beyond the little town they halted, and Mole rode on for a short way alone to the edge of Hangley Wood, which was now close before them. There he dismounted and went in amongst the trees, but he was not long absent, for in less than five minutes he was by the colonel's side again. "'All's right, sir,' he said. "'The boy assures me that they were all there still, at six this morning, and that their captain, Radford, does not move till after dark to-night.' So now we shall have the worst fellows amongst them, the two Ramleys and all. Well then, answered Leighton, you had better go on at once with the party, keeping through the wood. I will remain behind, coming on slowly, and if wanted, you will find me somewhere in the hangar. Cornet Joyce has his orders in regard to surrounding the house, but of course he must act according to circumstances. No more words were needed. The party of dragoons moved on rapidly, with Mole at their head, and Leighton, after pausing for a few minutes on the road, dismounted, and giving his rein to the servant, walked slowly on into the wood, telling the two men who accompanied him to follow. There was at that time, as there is now, I believe, a broad road through Hangley Wood, leading into the crossroad from Biddenden to Goudhurst, but at that period, instead of being tolerably straight and good, it was very tortuous, rough and uneven. Along this forest path, for so it might be called, the dragoons had taken their way, at a quick trot, and by it their young colonel followed, with his arms crossed upon his chest, and his head bent down, in deep and anxious meditation. The distance across the wood at that part is nearly a mile, and when he had reached the other side, Leighton turned upon his steps again, passed his servant and the orderly, and walked slowly on the road back to Cranbrook. The two men went to the extreme verge of the wood and looked out towards Iden Green for a minute or two before they followed their officer, so that in the turnings of the road they were out of sight by the time he had gone a quarter of a mile. Leighton's thoughts were busy, as may be well supposed, but at length they were suddenly interrupted by loud, repeated and piercing shrieks, apparently proceeding from a spot at some distance before him. Darting on with a single glance behind, and a loud shout to call the men up, he rushed forward along the road, and the next instant beheld a sight which made his blood boil with indignation. At first he merely perceived a girl, struggling in the hands of some five or six ruffians, who were maltreating her in the most brutal manner. But in another instant, as, drawing his sword, he rushed forward, he recognised, for it can scarcely be said he saw, poor Kate Clare. 
With another loud shout to his men to come up, he darted on without pause or hesitation. But his approach was observed. The ruffians withdrew from around their victim, and one of them exclaimed, "'Run! Run! The dragoons are coming!' "'Dear me! Give her a shot before you go!' cried another. "'Or she'll peach!' "'Let her!' cried young Radford. "'But here goes!' and turning as he hurried away, he deliberately fired a pistol at the unhappy girl, who was starting up wildly from the ground. She instantly reeled and fell, some seconds before Leighton could reach her, for he was still at the distance of a hundred yards. All this had taken place in an inconceivably short space of time, but the next minute the panic with which the villains had been seized subsided a little. One turned to look back, another turned, they beheld but one man on the road, and all the party were pausing, when Leighton reached poor Kate Clare, and raised her in his arms. It might have fared ill with him, had he been alone, but just at that moment the orderly appeared at the turn, coming up at the gallop, with the young officer's servant behind him, and not doubting that a large party was following, Radford and his companions fled as fast as they could. "'On after them, like lightning,' cried Leighton, as the men came up, "'Leave the horse. Leave the horse and away. "'Watch them wherever they go, especially the man in the green coat. "'Take him if you can. Shoot him dead if you resist.' "'Ah, my poor girl,' he cried, with the tears rising in his eyes. "'This is sad indeed. Where has he wounded you?' "'There,' said Kate faintly, taking away her hand, "'which was pressed upon her right side. "'But that was his kindest act. Thank God I am dying.' "'Nay, nay,' answered Leighton, "'I trust not.' But the blood poured rapidly out, staining all her dress, which was torn and in wild disorder, and so rapidly did it flow that Leighton clearly saw her words would probably prove true. "'Who was that villain?' he cried. "'I will punish him if there be justice on earth.' "'Don't you know him?' said Kate, her voice growing more and more low. "'I thought you were seeking him. "'Richard Radford.' "'The atrocious scoundrel,' said Leighton, "'and drawing his handkerchief from his breast, "'he tied it tightly over her side, "'trying, though he saw it was clearly in vain, "'to stanch the blood, "'while at the same time he supported her against his knee "'with one arm thrown round her waist. "'Poor Kate closed her eyes with a faint shudder, "'and for a moment Leighton thought she was dead. "'She appeared to be reviving again, however, when a loud voice, not far distant, exclaimed, ha, "Hello! What the devil is this?" Leighton looked suddenly up, for his eyes had been bent upon the poor girl's face for several minutes, and then beheld, hurrying up the road with a look of fury in his countenance, Kate's promised husband, Harding. With a violent oath, the man rushed on, exclaiming, "Kate, what is all this? Villain, have you misused the girl?" "'Hush, hush!' cried Leighton, with a stern gesture of his hand. "'She's dying. I would have saved her if I could, but alas, I came too late.' The whole expression of Harding's countenance changed in an instant. Grief and terror succeeded to rage, and catching her frantically in his arms, he exclaimed, "'Kate, Kate, speak to me. Tell me, who has done this?' "'I can tell you,' answered Leighton. "'Richard Radford.' While he was speaking, Kate Clare opened her eyes again and gazed on Harding's face, moving her right hand faintly round and placing it upon his. "'Give me that handkerchief from your neck,' said Leighton. "'If we can stop the blood, we may save her yet. 
I have seen very bad wounds recovered from. No, no, said Kate Clare. Thank God I am dying. I would rather die. Harding, I am not in fault. They caught me in the wood. Oh, they treated me horribly. Mr. Radford said it was revenge. God forgive him. God forgive him. But I would rather die thus in your arms. Do not try to stop it. It is all in vain. Leighton and Harding still persisted, however, and bound another handkerchief tight over the wound, in some degree diminishing the stream of blood, but yet not stopping it entirely. "'Let us carry her to some house,' cried Leighton, "'and then send for assistance. "'See, her lips are not so pale.' "'I will carry her,' said Harding, "'raising her in his powerful arms. "'To my aunt's, then. "'To my aunt's, Harding,' murmured Kate. "'I would sooner die there than in any other place.' "'And on Harding sped without reply, "'while Leighton, sheathing his sword, "'which he had cast down, "'followed him, inquiring, "'Is it far?' "'But a step, sir,' answered the smuggler. "'Pray, come with us. This must be avenged.' "'It shall,' replied Leighton sternly. "'But I must stay here for a minute or two "'till you can send somebody to me to take my place "'and let my men know where I am when they return.' "'Harding nodded his head and then turned his eyes "'upon the face of the poor girl whom he bought in his arms.' hurrying on without a moment's pause, till he was lost to the young officer's sight. It is needless to describe the feelings of a high-minded and noble man like Clayton, when left alone to meditate over the horrible outrage which had been committed under his very eyes. He gave way to no burst of indignation, indeed, but with a frowning brow walked back upon the road, caught his horse without difficulty, and mounting, remained fixed near the spot where poor Kate had received her death wound, like a soldier upon guard. In less than ten minutes a lad ran up, saying, "'Mr. Harding sent me, sir.' "'Well, then, walk up and down here, my good boy,' replied Leighton, "'till someone comes to inquire for me. "'If it should be a servant or a single soldier, "'send him down to the place which you came from, "'and wait where you are till a larger party of dragoons come up when you must tell them the same, to go down to me there. If the party come first, wait for the servant and the soldier. Having given these directions, he was turning away, but paused again to inquire his way to the place where Harding was, and then, pointing to a bundle that lay upon the road, he said, You had better bring that with you. Following the boy's direction, as soon as he issued out of the woods, Sir Henry Leighton turned through a little field to the left, and seeing a small farmhouse at some distance before him, he leaped his horse over two fences to abridge the way. Then, riding into the farmyard, he sprang to the ground, looking round for someone to take his charger. Several men of different ages were running about with eagerness and haste in their faces. Horses were being led forth from the stable, guns were in the hands of several, and one of them, a fine, tall, powerful young fellow, exclaimed as soon as he saw Leighton, "'We will catch them, sir, we will catch them!' By blank, they shall be hanged as high as Haman for hurting a poor dead girl. Here, take his honour's horse, Bill. Is she still living? asked Leighton. Oh, dear, yes, sir, cried the young man. She seemed somewhat better for what mother gave her. Well, then, rejoined the young officer, if you are going to search for these scoundrels, gallop up to the wood as fast as you can. You will find my servant and a trooper watching. They will give you information of, of which way the villains are gone. I will join you in a minute or two with a stronger force.' 
"'Oh, sir, we shall do, we shall do,' cried William Harris. "'We will raise the whole county as we go, "'and will hunt them down like foxes. "'Do they think that our sisters and our wives "'are to be ill-used and murdered by such scum as they are?' "'And at the same time he sprang upon his horse's back. Leighton turned towards the house, "'but met the old farmer himself "'coming out with a great cavalry sword in his hand "'and the butt-end of a pistol sticking out of each pocket.' "'Quick, quick, to your horses!' he cried. "'They shall rue the day! They shall rue the day! "'Ah, sir, go in,' he continued, seeing Leighton. "'She's telling my wife and Harding all about it, "'but I can't stop to hear. "'I will have that young Radford's blood "'if I have a soul to be saved.' "'Better take him alive and hand him over to justice,' said Leighton, "'going into the house. "'Ding him! I'll kill him like a dog!' cried the farmer, and mounting somewhat less nimbly than his son, he put himself at the head of the whole party assembled, and rode fast away towards Hangley Wood. In the meantime, Leighton entered the kitchen of the farm, but it was quite vacant. Voices, however, were heard speaking above, and he ventured to go up and enter the room. Three or four women were assembled there round good Mrs. Harris's own bed, on which poor Kate Clare was stretched, with Harding on his knees beside her, and her hand in his, the hot tears of man's bitterest agony coursing each other down his bronzed and weather-beaten cheek. "'There, there,' said Mrs. Harris. "'Don't take on so, Harding. You only keep down her spirits. She might do very well if she would but take heart. You see she's better for the cordial stuff I gave her.' Harding made no reply, but Kate Clare faintly shook her head, and Leighton, after having gazed on the sad scene for a moment, with bitter grief and indignation in his heart, drew back, thinking that his presence would only be a restraint to Kate's family and friends. He made a sign, however, to one of the women before he went, who followed him out of the room. "'I merely wish to tell you,' he said in a low voice, when the woman joined him at the top of the stairs, "'that I am going back to the wood to aid in the pursuit of these villains, for I can be of no use here and may be there.' If any of my people come, tell them where to find me. Bid them follow me instantly, and stop every man on foot they see quitting the wood, till he gives an account of himself. But had you better not send for a surgeon? One is sent for, sir, replied the woman, but I think she's not so bad as she was. I'll take care and tell your people. I do hope they will catch them, for this is too bad." Without more words, Leighton went down, remounted his horse, and galloped back towards the edge of the wood. The news of what had happened, however, seemed to have spread over the country with the speed of lightning, and he saw four or five of the peasantry on horseback already riding in the same direction across the fields. Two stout farmers joined him as he went, and both were already full of the story of poor Kate Clare. Rage and indignation were universal amongst the people, but as usual on such occasions, one proposed one plan and another the other, so that by want of combination in their operations all their resolution and eagerness were likely to be fruitlessly employed. Leighton knew that it was of little use to argue on such points with undisciplined men, and his only trust was in the speedy arrival of the soldiers from Iden Green. When he reached the edge of the wood, however, with his two companions, they came upon Farmer Harris's party, now swelled to twelve or thirteen men, and at the same moment his own servant rode round, exclaiming, as soon as he saw his master, "'They're in the wood, sir. 
if they have not come out this way. They dispersed so that we could not follow them in horseback, and we galloped out by different ways to watch. They haven't come here, cried Farmer Harris, or we should have seen them. So now we have them safe enough. Ride off towards Iden Green, said Leighton to the servant, and direct Cornet Joyce to bring down his men at the gallop to the edge of the copse. Let him dismount twelve on the north side of the wood, and with all the farm servants and country people he can collect, sweep it down, while the rest of the mounted men advance in a line on either side. Stay, I will write, and tearing a leaf out of his pocket-book, he put down his orders in pencil. The man had just galloped away when the young farmer, William Harris, shouted, "'There they go! There they go! After them! After them! Tally-ho!' and instantly set spurs to his horse. All the rest but Leighton followed at full speed, but he paused, and directing his eyes along the edge of the wood, clearly saw at the distance of somewhat more than half a mile three men, who seemed to have issued forth from amongst the trees, running across the fields as fast as they could go. It would seem that they had not been aware of the numbers collected to intercept them, till they had advanced too far to retreat, but they had got a good start. The country was difficult for any but well-trained horses, and darting on they took their way towards Goudhurst, passing within a hundred yards of the spot where the victim of their horrid barbarity lay upon the bed of death. Taking the narrow paths, leaping the stiles and gates, they at first seemed to gain upon the mass of peasantry who followed them, though their pursuers were on horseback and they on foot. But well knowing the country, the farmers spread out along the small bridle roads, and while the better-mounted horsemen followed direct across the fields, the others prepared to cut off the ruffians on the right and left. Gradually a semicircle enclosing them within its horns was thus formed, and all chance of escape by flight was thus cut off. In this dilemma the three miscreants made straight towards a farmhouse at which they occasionally received hospitality in their lawless expeditions, and which bears the name of Smuggler Farm to this day, and they knew not that all hearts had been raised against them by their late atrocities, and that the very tenant of the farm himself was now one of the foremost in pursuit. Rushing in then with no farther ceremony than casting the door open, they locked and barred it, just as some of the peasantry were closing in upon them, and then, hurrying to the kitchen where the farmer's wife, his sister, and a servant was collected, Ned Ramley, who was the first, exclaimed, "'Have you no hide, good dame?' "'Hide?' replied the stout farmer's wife, eyeing him askance. "'Not for such villains as you. Give me the spit, Madge. I have a great mind to run him through.' Ned Ramley drew a pistol from his pocket, but at that moment the window was thrown open, the back door of the house was cast open, and half a dozen of the stout yeomanry rushed in. The smugglers saw that resistance would be vain, but still they resisted, and though in the agitation of the moment Ned Ramley's pistol was discharged innocuously, he did not fail to aim it at the head of young William Harris, who was springing towards him. The stout farmer, however, instantly levelled him with the ground with a thundering blow upon the head, and the other two men, after a desperate struggle, were likewise taken and tied. "'Lucky for you it was me and not my father, Master Ramley,' said William Harris. "'He'd have blown your brains out, but you're only safe to be hanged anyhow. Ay, here he comes. Stop, stop, old gentleman. He's a prisoner. Don't you touch him. Let the law have the job, as the gentleman said.' 
"'Oh, you accursed villain! "'Oh, you hellish scoundrel!' cried old Harris, "'kept back with difficulty by his son and the rest. "'You were one of the foremost of them, "'but where is the greatest villain of them all? "'Where's that limb of the devil, young Radford? "'I will have him. "'Let me go, Will. "'I will have him, I say.' "'Ned Ramley laughed aloud. "'You won't, though,' he answered bitterly. "'He's been gone this half-hour, "'and will be at the sea and over the sea "'before you can catch him.' "'You may do with me what you like, but he's safe enough.' "'Someone ride off and tell the officer what he says,' cried the farmer. "'But when the intelligence was conveyed to Sir Henry Leighton, "'he was already aware that some of the men must have made their escape unobserved, "'for his servant had met Cornet Joyce and the party of dragoons by the way, "'and with the aid of a number of farm servants from Iden Green and its neighbourhood, "'the wood had been searched with such strictness that, that the pheasants,' which were at that time numerous there, had flown out in clouds as if a battle had been going on. He mistrusted Ned Ramley's information, however, knowing that the hardened villain would find a sort of pride in misleading the pursuers of young Radford, even though taken himself. Riding quickly across to the farm then, together with Mole and the cornet, he interrogated the men separately, but found they were all in the same story, from which they varied not in the least, that Richard Radford had crept out by the hedges near the wood, and had gone first to a place where a horse was in waiting for him, and thence would make straight to the seaside, where a boat was already prepared. Instant measures to prevent him from executing this plan now became necessary, and Leighton directed the cornet to hasten away as fast as possible in pursuit, sending information from Woodchurch to every point of the coast where the offender was likely to pass, spreading out his men so as to cover all the roads to the sea, and only leaving at the farm a sufficient guard to secure the prisoners. On hearing the latter part of this order, however, Farmer Harris exclaimed, "'No, no, sir, no need of that. We've taken them, and we'll keep them safe enough. I'll see these fellows into prison myself, aye, and hanged too, please God, and we'll guard them sure, don't you be afraid.' Leighton looked to Mole, saying, "'I must abide by your decision, Mr. Mole,' But the officer answered, "'Oh, you may trust them, sir, quite safely. "'After all I hear has happened. "'But I think, Mr. Harris, you had better have just a few men to help you. "'You've got no place to keep them here, "'and they must be taken before a magistrate first before they can be committed.' "'Oh, we'll keep them safe enough,' replied the farmer. "'We'll put them in Gouthurst Church till we can send them off, "'and in the meantime I'll have them up before Squire Broughton.' "'His sons are constable, so they are in proper hands.' "'Very well,' answered Leighton. "'In this case I have no right to interfere, "'but of course you are responsible for their safe custody.' "'I say, Mole,' cried Ned Ramley in his usual daring manner, "'bid them give me something to drink, for I'm devilish thirsty, "'and I'll give you some information, if you will.' "'Mole obtained some beer for him, and then demanded, "'Well, what is it, Ned?' "'Why, only this,' said Ned Ramley, after they had held the beer to his lips, and he had taken a deep draught. "'You will have your brains blown out before ten days are over.' "'I'm not afraid,' replied Mole, laughing. "'That's right,' answered Ned Ramley. "'But it will happen, for fifty of us has sworn it. "'We have had our revenge of your spy, Harding, and we have only you to settle with now.' "'Harding?' cried Mole. "'He's no spy of mine.' "'It was not he that peached you, young scoundrel. "'It was one of those whom you trusted more than him.' 
Ah, oh, well, answered Ned Ramley indifferently, then he'll have a sore heart tonight that he didn't work for. But you'll have your turn yet, Mr. Moles, so look that you make good use of your brains, for they won't be long in your skull. You're a hardened villain, said Sir Henry Leighton. You had better march them off as fast as you can, my good friends. Take them before a magistrate, and above all things get them to prison ere nightfall, or we may have another rescue. No fear, no fear, answered Farmer Harris. To rescue a smuggler is one thing. I never liked to see them taken myself, but bloodthirsty villains like these, that would ill-use a poor, dear, good girl, and murder her in cold blood, why, there is not a man in the county would not help to hang them. But I wish, sir, you would go yourself and see and stop that other great villain. If he isn't hanged too, I don't think I shall ever rest in my bed again. I will do my best, depend upon it, replied Leighton. But I must first, Mr. Harris, go to your house and see the state of that poor girl. I have known her since she was a child and feel for her almost as if she were a sister. Thank you, sir, thank you, cried old Harris, shaking him by the hand. There, boys, he continued, dashing away the tears from his eyes. Make a guard and take these blaggers off in the middle of you. We'll have them up to Squire Broughton's at once, and then I must go back too. On his way to the farm, Leighton desired Mole to return to Woodchurch and to wait for him there, taking every step that he might think necessary with the aid of Captain Irby. I will not be long, he added. Pray don't, sir, rejoined Mole, for we have other business to do tonight. And sinking his voice to a whisper, he added, I've got the information I wanted, sir. A part of the goods are certainly at Radford Hall, and if we can seize them there, that, with the deposition of the men at Woodchurch, will bring him in for the whole offence. I shall very likely overtake you on the way, replied Leighton, but at all events I shall be there before four. Most such calculations are vain, however. Leighton turned aside to the Harris's farm, where he found poor Kate Clare sinking rapidly. The curate of the parish had been sent for, and, by his advice, Mr. Broughton, the magistrate, who had entered the house but two or three minutes before Leighton himself, though her voice now scarcely rose above a whisper, she made her dying declaration with clearness and accuracy. It is not necessary here to give any of the details, but as she concluded she turned her faint and swimming eyes towards Leighton, saying, "'That gentleman, who has always been such a good friend to me and mine, can tell you more, sir, for he came up to my help just as they shot me.' The magistrate raised his eyes and inquired, in a low tone, "'Who is he?' "'Sir Henry Leighton,' replied the poor girl, loud enough for that officer to hear, and thinking that she asked for him, he approached nearer and stood by Harding's side. Kate raised her hand a little from the bedclothes as if she would have given it to him, and he took it kindly in his, speaking some words of comfort. "'Thank you, sir. Thank you for all your kindness,' said Kate." I am glad you have come, that I may wish you good-bye, and ask you to be kind to poor Harding, too. It will soon be over now, and you had better all leave me. Not you, Harding, not you. You must close my eyes, as my poor mother is not here. A groan burst from the stout seaman's breast, and giving way to all his feelings, he sobbed like a child. According to her desire, Leighton and Mr. Broughton retired from the room, and the young officer informed the magistrate that the prisoners who had been taken were waiting for examination at his house. "'We shall want your evidence, Sir Henry,' said the magistrate. 
It is absolutely necessary if, as I understand, you were eyewitness to the murder. Leighton saw the propriety of the magistrate's demand and he yielded immediately, but the investigation was prolonged by several circumstances, and, what between the time that it took up and that which had been previously spent in the pursuit of the murderers, it was past three o'clock before Leighton mounted his horse at Mr. Broughton's door. He paused for an instant at the gate of the Harris's farmyard, where a girl was standing with tears in her eyes, but before he could ask any question she replied to that which was rising to his lips. "'She is gone, sir,' said the girl. "'She is gone. She did not last half an hour after you were here.' With a sad heart Leighton rose on, passing at a quick pace through Harborne Wood, and not trusting himself to stop at Mrs. Clare's cottage. The windows, however, were closed, and the young officer concluded from that circumstance that the tidings of her daughter's fate must, by this time, have reached the childless widow. Not far behind her gate he was met by Sir Edward Digby's servant, but eager to arrive at Woodchurch, Leighton did not stop to speak with him, and Summers, turning his horse with the orderly and his old companion, Leighton's servant, gleaned what information he could from them as he went. Notwithstanding all the speed he could use, however, it was past four before Leighton reached Woodchurch, and on inquiring for Mr. Ward he found that gentleman had called, but gone away again, saying he would return in an hour. End of chapter 9